My sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different than normal. Um, I normally do expository sermons, although occasionally I do uh, topical. And a and, uh, few weeks ago, when I was plotting out sermons, I had just, in my study, um, read a couple of different verses, uh, a couple of different passages, and I just saw in my mind how those maybe went together. And uh, so I decided, uh, I don't know, three, four weeks ago to use those. And so it's going to be a little bit of a topical sermon. I might step on your toes today, okay? Just understand that before we get into it. But here's the thing. In about uh, 40 minutes, I start a week's vacation. So if I do step on your toes, I'm leaving town. Nothing you can do about it. There's nothing which communicates a thought quite like a story. As you know, I like to use stories sometimes, kind of frequently, to convey a point that I'm trying to make. I usually use true ones from my life. However, just like with a parable, which is another kind of story, true stories, true examples from history, whether it's my life or ancient history, whatever, they only go so far in making a point. It's never 100% of this applies. The Old Testament is really, really good at telling great stories. Most of them are historical. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that the stories themselves are not always about good things, okay? When you're reading a story, specifically in the Old Testament, that is not a biblical endorsement of the behavior of the people in the story. Keep that in mind. I've had a lot of people over the years who have come to me, uh, like when I was a a Bible college student and I was working full-time, I'd have people that I worked with say, hey, I just read this story in the Bible and it seems pretty weird. And I've had to tell them, yes, it's recording what happened, not necessarily that what happened was good. It doesn't always call it out for being bad. And when people read that and it just offends their sense of goodness, they're like, wait a minute, why is the Bible telling me this story? This is an awful story. Well, sometimes it's just to tell facts. Other times it's to show how that wasn't a good path to go down. Sometimes, in cases, we can even find instances of a person who does things correctly in one paragraph. And then in the very next paragraph, we see the exact same person doing something pretty much reprehensible. We see people doing wrong things sometimes for what they would probably think of as good reasons. Or we see people doing the right thing, but with wrong motives. This is because it's the Bible. It isn't a Disney fairy tale where everybody lives happily ever after. It's a book of fallen, often corrupted people interacting with other fallen people and with God. 
What we need to do is learn to discern the parts which would be good for us to emulate from those which we should shun and abstain from. We're going to look at an example of this from the Old Testament, but first, I would like us to look at just a couple verses from the end of one of Paul's letters. There's a short little tidbit which the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, and I want us to take this just as our starting point. It's something that is sandwiched in between two unrelated paragraphs in the closing comments of his first letter to the, to the people of Corinth, but I like what it says. It's just two short verses. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14. Are you with me there upstairs? There we go. Thank you. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14 says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I think that this is just a great little comment. There's just so much involved in it. The comment at the beginning, be watchful. Or in some translations, it might say, be on your guard. It's a present imperative. It is something that you just continually have ongoing in your life. It's a, a state of mind sort of thing that we need to be doing, not just once, but always. It is quite probably to be meaning to be watching for the day of the Lord. But it has significant more meaning than that. It means that we need to have our entire life's focus guided by the concept of looking to the day of Christ's return. Not that we don't have other thoughts, but that this is the guiding concept of our mental focus. We, of course, have our minds on other things in our lives which we probably wouldn't think of as being connected to eternity. There are mundane things that we do that you probably do not consider a part of being a Christian. But virtually everything that we ever do should be connected that way. Mundane moments in our lives. For instance, something as simple as washing the dishes or performing a really boring task at your job. These would not seem to be something that we need to be watchful about. And perhaps the act itself doesn't. But I would suggest that how we do even the most mundane little tasks does apply. In nearly everything we do, the way in which we approach it or how we go about doing it can be something which either builds our relationship with God and advances his kingdom on earth, or it can detract from it, depending on how you do it, how you go about it, the attitude, the mindset, the, the way your heart is while you do it. Of course, some things 
matter far more than others, but nearly everything can have some kind of an effect. A lot of the stories in the Old Testament center around people doing great things, you know, big things, like kings going off to war. That's a big event. My wife always says she never liked history because most of history that's written is focused on when what people went to war against what people for what reason. Those are big deals. And this might make us think that the small things we do really don't matter so much. But think about this. One of the best stories in all of the Old Testament, one of my favorites, is about a young widow woman who goes out to glean wheat from the harvest, mundane, all day long. But it's a great story. And it's made great by the the desire that she has in her heart for how she should do things and how those little mundane things affect all of the people around her. My point is that we should have our minds focused on God's desires for us in all these areas and not think that just the big things matter. But let's take a look at one of those things that is a big thing for just a moment. It's mainly about one of the kings of Judah named Amaziah, who on the whole was a little bit above average as far as his um, relationship with the Lord goes. He's not by any means a wonderful king. But compared to the other ones that were terrible, he, he comes out looking pretty decent. But he definitely wasn't top notch. Let's look in 2 Chronicles 25, 5 through 13. Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and set them by fathers' houses under commanders of thousands and hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that there were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. He hired also... 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel. Remember, Israel and Judah have split at this point. Judah is the only nation that even tried to keep with God. Israel went pagan straight off. So he hires uh, mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, Do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel and all these Ephraimites. But go, act, go, act, be strong for battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, He's he's thinking about his pocket. But what shall we do about the hundred talents I have given them, given to the army of Israel? 
He's like, hey, hey, wait, I already paid for these guys. The man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Then Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger. But Amaziah took courage and led out his people and went to the Valley of Salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive and took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock and they were all dashed to pieces. Eh, Not real nice guys back then, but you know. But the men of the army of uh, whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him into battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and struck down 3,000 people in, uh, in them and took much spoil. So he's going off to war, and this is a guy who, for the most part, is faithful to God. But after he counts all his men, he hires basically mercenaries from pagan Israel because he doesn't quite think he's got what it takes to win. And a man of God, uh, probably a prophet, comes to him and says, what are you doing? Do you not trust God? Do you have to trust these people that you don't think good things will come unless you align yourself with godless, evil people? Amaziah doesn't seem to have been extremely well-schooled in the law of God, so he did make some bad choices. And if, like I said, in the very next paragraph after this, we see that he wasn't that great of a guy. But he did at least one really good thing. When he was going to face his enemies, and he's not real sure of his chances of victory, and he doesn't trust God, he trusts this other army. He had this person come to him, this man of God, this prophet. And he was told, this is a bad idea. And he relented and he did what he was told, the righteous thing to do. He didn't align himself with the people he, he thought, I need them or my what I'm trying to accomplish won't happen. And he knew that it might cost him, and it did end up costing him some. But he chose not to align himself with unrighteous people anyway. In the end, the only thing which cost him in that situation was his own misgivings. He had trusted evil people, so when he decided to to break his alignment with them, they turned against him. It also cost him because there was a price for him becoming allied with evil people. When he decided to simply trust in God for the best outcome of what he really wanted to happen, in this case, a battle, things went very well for him in that. It was only the anger of the people he had formerly been allied with and then broken the alliance. That was all that cost him. Let me tell you a modern, a somewhat more modern story. A true story. 
that doesn't have a fairy tale ending. When the United States had not even finished World War II, this is in the last several weeks of World War II, many of our leaders did something which I find unbelievably evil. They set out to find some of the worst, worst Nazi war criminals who existed. Men who had tortured and killed thousands of Jews and other so-called undesirables. In some cases, these men had personally overseen thousands being worked to death in slave camps. They were building the Nazi secret weapons. This meant, yes, those, those rocket and missiles, the famous V1 and V2, but also biological weapons that they never ended up using, but which were of immense power. The men of our government were searching out also doctors and medical scientists who had performed unspeakable things on human beings, killing humans by the hundreds and thousands for research tests. Our government sent teams to search out these evil men, but not to bring them to justice. Although we did have, we had the left hand and the right hand not knowing what they were doing. They had some teams out there searching for them to bring them to trial and hang them for what they had done. And other people working for our same government who were secretly gathering them up to hire them and bring them back to the United States so they could work for us. We were willing to give them a clean slate from their crimes against humanity if they would just spill the beans on what they had learned and help our government make bigger, better, more sophisticated weapons. These Nazis were given high-paying jobs in the United States, and some were made famous as heroes. Werner von Braun, for instance, was made a hero of our NASA program. He had been an SS officer who personally oversaw working hundreds of people to death. And then he'd pick up the phone and say, I need more slaves. Why, you might ask, why would we do this? Why would we make allies with people this evil? Because, you see, the Russians had captured a lot of scientists and their scientific equipment, and their research materials. And our government was afraid that the Soviets were getting ahead of us. And so they valued research over righteousness. I want you to understand something about this. 
Some of these people were already arrested and were being put on trial and would have almost certainly have been hung. And our government went in and secreted them away in the middle of the night, scrubbed their files, and made them rich living in the United States, some of them through the 1970s, because we were afraid. If we don't side with the evil people, the people we're more afraid of will win. About 20, uh, 25, 28 years ago, I was an intern at a rather good-sized church, 350-ish people, somewhere in that neighborhood, And I, as an intern, was sitting in on one of the board meetings that they were having. And they came to a discussion about money that they had saved. They had, had, I don't know, $50,000 or so in savings, and they had been wanting to invest it in high-yield investments. And somebody brought up, they they had looked in detail at the place where we had invested it, and they said, hey, wait a second here. This this fund that we've invested in, like a third of our money is invested in tobacco companies. And the person who had done the research and put it there said, yeah, all the the best performing ones do. And he said, no. I don't want our money there. And they said, well, we, we won't make as much money if we don't. And there was some discussion. And they decided, we'd rather make less money. We do not want to be putting the church's money in things that we don't think are a good idea or are good for our fellow people. It cost them. When they reinvested it somewhere else, it didn't produce as much. But they had made a decision not to align with something that wasn't in line with their values. Back to our two short verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I hope that I am not stretching the text beyond anything the Lord would approve of. This instruction to stand firm, act like men and be strong, heralds back to several passages from the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do nothing at all to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. After the death of Moses, God himself is telling Joshua to stand firm in his faith. Don't waffle. And trust in earthly things like alliances with ungodly people. Just do what he knew was righteous and correct from the word of God. And God would see him through to the end. 
First Chronicles 28, verse 20. Actually, I think this is more than one verse. I may have mistyped that when I put it in the... But it starts with 1 Chronicles 28, 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Here again, but in a different type of situation, instruction is given to trust God. And not do what would go against God for the purpose of trying to accomplish what you think might be God's goal. I mean, if you think about that, how crazy is that mindset? I know that what I'm considering doing would go directly against God and what is right. But I'm worried that if I don't, then I will fail. And God's goal won't be accomplished. To me, that makes no sense. And yet, all of us have probably done it. We as Christians sometimes fall into the misguided teaching of diplomacy and warfare adopted by most modern nations, including our own. And it usually ends up bad. And that teaching is, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. No, they're not. All that makes them is your enemy's enemy. It doesn't mean that they're your friend. They are very likely also your enemy. And you'll usually know it. It's an unsupportable mindset and it's unbiblical for Christians to ally themselves with evil people because they think that that's the only way to defeat worse people. The thing about the, the Nazis that I was talking about earlier, one of the interesting things on that, they sealed all those records till the 1980s. Do you know why? Because they knew that people would be outraged if they found out they had done these things. That they had allied themselves with some of the most vile people in history because they thought, oh, they'll help us against these other people. How can we, and I say this as a guilty person, Understand that, okay? Before I say another word, I'm guilty. How can we, as Christians, actively support, for instance, politicians who are despicable people because we think that if we don't, that even worse people will win? How can we support other politicians who do and support evil, wicked policies 
because they also happen to support some things that we might be in favor of. Earlier on in the sermon, I said that nearly everything we do and how we go about doing it, even washing dishes or mundane tasks at our work, they can either build our relationship with God and his kingdom on earth, or they can detract from our relationship with God and detract from his kingdom on earth. How we go about doing it matters. I also said that it isn't just the big things like fighting wars that make the differences in that relationship. Even gathering wheat in a field was important because of how it was done. As I study about how people in our nation got into bed with some of the most evil people of history, I'm angered and disgusted. You probably are also, if this was the first time that you heard that we did that. It isn't just the big things that we do or go along with or who we support that matters. It's the very small things also. Everything that we do, every action that we take, whether it's standing up for something that is really good and we must stand for it, or saying, you know what? I think I'm going to step back from this thing because there's no win situation here. I'm not going to participate. How we do things matters almost exactly as much as what we do. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name. Lord, help us to listen to the Holy Spirit as he convicts us as to whether or not we're doing something right or wrong. Help us read your word and study it and, and know it so well that we don't have to be confused about right or wrong. Help us to choose you every time, Lord, even if it looks like it may cost us because you have promised to stand with us if we do. In Jesus' name.